There's nothing of theology of ministry from Ecclesiastes. I tried to make this sound as hopeful and positive as possible, and you all got the message, so I appreciate that. This, this class is a, a deeply personal one for me, and I think you'll understand a little better as, as we move through this. I'll start with a bit of autobiography to put this in context and why I'm doing this class. Last year at this time, May and heading into the summer, if you had asked me, I would have told you that I was going to get out of preaching ministry for good. I had a transition plan in place at the church where I had been preaching for the last 10 years. We were getting ready to make an announcement of that plan. I had some plans for some other ventures and opportunities that I was going to pursue and probably still preach some on the side, but I thought it's time for me to get out of the regular weekly local preaching ministry. You likely have people in your life that that you know who've been doing this for a number of years, they've made similar situations. It's not a, a new thing. And I thought, I well, some of my very best friends are getting out of preaching. Maybe it's time for me to get out of preaching as well. So I no, actually, I had always thought, I'm 49, and I had always thought, even in my 20s, that as I approached 50, that it'd probably be about time for me to think about doing something else. And so I, at this time last year, I really was going to get out of preaching, and we made an announcement in June of last year at my church that that's what was going to happen, and the transition was going to begin. Everyone in my church understood, just as I did, just as the elders I was working with, that this was, this was going to be a transition out. And the reason for wanting to get out, I, I could give a, a, a number of reasons. Partly, like I said, I had always thought that would it'd be a good time to do it. I also was just tired of the weekly grind of writing and prepping and preaching sermons. My ministry is very preaching-focused. This maybe should be entitled a theology of preaching ministry, not just ministry in Ecclesiastes. The weekly grind of figuring out what am I going to say and how am I going to say it and how do I get ready on Saturday night so that I say it as well as I can on Sunday. It just was wearing me out. I also had a, a sense that, that what I was doing was not really making that much of a difference. I think we all sensed it moving through the pandemic, but even before I felt like my life was write a sermon, preach a sermon, write another sermon but I wasn't sure much was happening in response to what I was doing. So I was having a really hard time connecting any sense of outcome or meaning or purpose to all the work I was doing. So getting tired of that. And, and so there was this overarching sense of, is, this, is there a point to this? Now, I don't preach three-point sermons, but are my sermons absolutely pointless? Is there any meaning? Is there any larger purpose behind this? Or am I really just going through the motions? My church says good sermon, and then we get on with our week, and then we do it again. So that's where I was a year ago, and that had been building for several years. And then last week, I preached my first sermon at a new church, the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ in Allen, Texas. So I didn't get out of preaching ministry. In fact, what I did was sign up for another round of 
of preaching ministry with a new church and, and starting a new ministry. What happened? What changed my mind? What influenced this change in decision over the past year? That's largely what this class is about. And this class is intended to give a partial answer to the question. The answer itself is far too complex and some of the details way too nuanced to get into in a 45 minute class. But I do want to put down a big chunk of an answer here in this class by, by walking you through some of what I learned and, and saw in Ecclesiastes last fall. Because last fall, I decided that as my last original sermon series, perhaps that I was ever going to write or preach, I was going to do Ecclesiastes. I knew this spring as I was finishing up my ministry at my church, I was going to do some greatest hits and revisit some things, but I, I, was, not, I was tired of writing new sermons. So I thought, I'm going to write one last series, and it's going to be from Ecclesiastes. Now, why Ecclesiastes? Of all the things you could preach from. One of the reasons is it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Might be my favorite book in the Bible. It, it has always spoken to me. I, there, I find more reality and more truth and more this guy sees it as it is and is not afraid to say it than just about any other place in the scriptures. So I, I love Ecclesiastes. I had never preached from it before at the church where I'd been at for 10 years. Years ago, I preached through Ecclesiastes when I was 25, 26 years old, when I had everything figured out. And I went back and looked at those sermons, and I just threw them away. I was like, holy cow, did, preaching through Ecclesiastes in your 20s versus as you're approaching your 50s are two very different experiences. So I'd never really dug into Ecclesiastes with now 25 years of preaching ministry experience. So I wanted to do that. And then finally, I, I really needed a challenge. I knew that as I was in the home stretch, it would be easy to coast. I wanted to challenge myself and in really trying to figure out how to preach Ecclesiastes to a church, especially if you want to do five or six weeks or seven weeks or eight weeks out of Ecclesiastes, you've really got to do your work and you've got to be prepared to, to draw the the congregation in. So I wanted to challenge myself with one hard task as I finished up. And then at the end of the fall, as we were heading into Advent, I finished my series on Ecclesiastes, and I just wasn't sure I wanted to quit preaching. And a big part of it had to do with some of the things I was forced to wrestle with as I worked through Ecclesiastes. So I'm, I'm still preaching in part because of Ecclesiastes. And, and you know, if you've read through Ecclesiastes, it's not that I, it was a pep rally. And it, it energized me and boosted me. No, it, it was actually the opposite, which, which I'll share more. So here, here's, here are the insights. Some of the insights I gained from Ecclesiastes that I, I think have helped keep me in preaching. And I thought, there's too much in Ecclesiastes to do it all. So I really want to focus on the first couple of chapters. Most of what the teacher is going to say in Ecclesiastes, you get it in the first three chapters anyway. So we'll spend most of our time there. I think I could probably just spend all my time in chapter one, and it's all there if you, if you really want it. But does that sound good to you? That's what you signed up for today? 
We're not, 10 minutes in. If you need to go to another class, you're, you're welcome. Here's your opportunity. Otherwise, we're going to dive into Ecclesiastes. And I really just I want to work through some texts with you and make some insights and see if I can depress you and then wrap this thing up. So let's start in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. And I'll set the context. Verse 1, chapter 1 says the words of the teacher, depending on the translation you use, that could be something else. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So first, there are two voices in Ecclesiastes. There is what we will call the narrator, or the frame narrator, who in verse 1 is introducing the teacher. This is not the teacher speaking. This is somebody else saying, these are the words of the teacher. So there is a narrator. <clears throat> if we have time, I want to finish with him today because I think he serves an important role. <clears throat> Excuse me. The second, I've got a water here somewhere. The second voice will be that of the teacher or the preacher. In the original language, it could be translated teacher or preacher. It's actually the gatherer of the assembly. If you're into the 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 technical word, some call him Koheleth or Kohelet, but he is a speaker a teacher, a wisdom teacher, preacher, a sage in the Solomonic tradition. I'm not going to belabor this. I don't think that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. I think that whoever this teacher is frames his teachings in such a way to remind us of Solomon. There are allusions and references to Solomon. Solomon, the epitome of the greatest king, the wisest king, and this sage is actually poking at Solomon a bit and wants us to think of Solomon. But there's a lot of internal and external evidence for why it's not really Solomon. Not going to wrestle anybody over that one. It matters not to me if you agree. I'm just not going to call him Solomon. I'm going to call him the teacher, mostly because that's all he's ever known as in the text. He's never called Solomon, and he never calls himself Solomon. So this is the teacher. Or maybe since, for our purposes, they may call him the preacher. These are the reflections of a preacher who has spent a lot of time observing people, observing life, observing the way groups function, observing the way leaders rise and fall and are replaced. He has a lot to say to us. So let's listen to what the preacher has to say. So the preacher says, he's introduced in verse 1, chapter 1, and here we get his thesis statement. This is the theology of Ecclesiastes, the philosophy of the preacher in a nutshell. Meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Can you see why that's my favorite book in the Bible? Well, that's from the NIV. If you're using the NRSV, it may say vanity of vanities, Common English Bible says pointless, pointless, it's all pointless. The word he uses is difficult to translate into English. It's, it's actually easier for us to get the sense and the action behind it. It, it. it literally is vapor or mist, hevel or hevel. But metaphorically, it is, it's the ephemerality of life. It's something you can't grab. When he says it's chasing after the wind, you can't grab the wind. That's, that's hevel. That I, my personal translation is vaporous. 
I would read this, vaporous, vaporous, says the teacher, utterly vaporous. Everything is vaporous. It's vapor, it's mist. It doesn't last. And then he continues in verse 3, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? This is his fundamental question that he comes back to throughout the book. What's the profit? What's the gain? What's the payoff? Is there any real payoff to all the work we do, to all our effort? You write sermon after sermon after sermon. You preach it week after week after week. 25% of your church is there 25% of the time. And they're not listening to the podcast. They don't care about the details you care about. They're not as fascinated with the text as you are. Is there really any, when you unpack Romans and you've showed them everything there is to know about Romans, is anybody really different? Did it really make much of a difference? Does anybody really care? Vaporous, vaporous, it's all vaporous. And is there really any payoff, any gain to our existence and the work that we're doing? That's his question. And there are a number of things that he says negate the payoff, negate the gain. For a big one for him is death. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that one this morning, but if you work through Ecclesiastes, you know. Death really bothers him because it's the equalizer. It's also, he does not have a view of a resurrection of any kind. He has no sense of afterlife. Not worth chasing today, but he only... He's, he's working with what he knows and can see, and all he knows is you live and then you die. And what happens after that, he doesn't know, but he's afraid not much. And a Christian reading of Ecclesiastes, we can jump in too quickly with resurrection and negate his observations. And I'm not going to do that. The resurrection's there, it'll come in in the end, and it's all good, but don't use, but the resurrection! Don't use but the resurrection to silence the teacher any more than you would use the resurrection to negate the cross. The suffering of Christ on the cross was real and it mattered. And we would not want to duplicate it even though there was a resurrection. So don't use the resurrection to negate the honest reflections of the teacher. So he's worried about it. There's no real payoff to this. I'm not sure it makes any big difference. And then he begins to unpack the way the world works. He says, generations come and go. People move into your church, and then they move on. But the earth remains forever, and it doesn't really change. The sun rises and the sun sets and then hurries back to where it rises. There's this fantastic imagery. He's, he's got the sun is moving across the sky. Another translation says, and then it pants, like a dog panting to get back to the other side. So it, it moves across the sky, and then it rushes back to the other side so it can do it again. And that's the sun. This is the sun's existence. Day after day after day, it makes the sun a potential victim of burnout. Look, there are not many jokes in Ecclesiastes. If you're not going to work with me, this is going to be dark and it's going to be bad. 
He said the sun is always moving, always working. And, and what's the payoff for the sun? The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, around and around it goes, ever returning on its course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. So there is this tedious cycle in nature. He says this is the way the world works. And this is the kind of world we're living, this kind of world we're trapped in. This kind of world you're preaching, delivering sermons in. This is the kind of church you're, the world your church exists in. It's just the same old thing over and over and over again. And a lot of times it seems like it's not making much of a difference. All things are wearisome, verse 8. That could also be translated, all words are wearisome. Now we're preaching. He says, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear, it's full of hearing. There's a sense here, he's just saying it's all blah, blah, blah. Everybody's got something to say. Everyone has a new philosophy, a new theory, social media, and it's all blah, blah, blah. Are all of those words being shared on social media, are they really making a difference? No, and yet we keep reading the eye keeps seeing the ear keeps hearing and it wears you out what has been will be again and what has been done will be done again there's nothing new under the sun and the longer you work in church the more you know that's true every idea that comes up in an elders meeting at some point you're like, oh we're doing this again <laughs> really okay yep i remember yeah, oh yeah, it's, it's that elder's year to talk about small groups. We're going to focus on small groups for a while. There's no, and you read church history and you realize that there really is nothing new under the sun. We've all seen and done it before. Preaching, you write your sermons, and at some point, and you do this long enough, you, you realize, I've, I think I've found all the stuff there's to really say. No, I may find a new detail here every now and then, but... But I've pretty much said, I've got all the big rocks in the jar. I, I've said what I can say. <clears throat> I've got nothing new to say. That's the way I felt preaching to a church after 10 years. I've really, I'm, the only way to stay longer than 10 years is for me to double back and start repeating myself. And then I did, and, and I realized they didn't remember that I had already said this. It really is meaningless. It really is pointless. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. And then verse 11, this is another one of his big problems. He says, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. The preacher is obsessed with legacy. Now, there's one way to read Ecclesiastes where... The preacher comes across as a fairly self-absorbed, narcissistic, I, I want to be famous, I want to be known forever, and I hate death because death ultimately is going to make it so no one remembers my name. And that's one way of reading this. He is consumed with how do I leave a legacy? If there's no life after death, the only way for me to be known forever is to do something great enough, achieve enough, that I will be remembered forever. 
and he recognizes because he sees what's happened in previous generations. At some point, people stop saying your name. What's that line? You die twice. Once when you quit breathing and once when your name is mentioned by someone for the last time. And it's that second death that bothers him almost as much as the first death. So he's consumed with his legacy. So this is the world he's trapped in. It's not making a difference. It's pointless. It's vaporous. Over and over and over again. And what's worse, if you do happen to achieve something great, it lasts for a generation, maybe two, and then you two are being forgotten. This reminds me, and again, trying to put this in the context for preachers, there, if you've read Gilead, the reflections of John Ames, this dying preacher, is it Marilyn Robinson who wrote that? That he writes, let's see if I can pull it up here. One of the things, it's this older preacher who is, he has a heart condition and he knows he's dying and he's writing a long letter to his young son. He married later in life, has a young son, he's writing this letter. And one of the things he returns to throughout the book is he reflects on all the sermons of, that he's written that are stored up in the attic. And these sermons are important to him, but they also haunt him. These boxes and boxes of sermons are in his attic and they represent his life's work. And they're just up in the attic. And this is one of the things he says about those sermons. He says, I think every day about going through those old sermons of mine to see if there are one or two I might want you to read sometime. He might want his son to read sometime. But there are so many, and I'm afraid, first of all, that most of them might seem foolish or dull to me. It might be best to burn them, but that would upset your mother, who thinks a great deal more of them than I do, for their sheer mass, I suppose, since she hasn't read them. It would be worth my life to try to get those big boxes down on my own. And then he says, he says it's humiliating to have written as much as Augustine and then to have to find a way to dispose of it. There's not a word in any of those sermons I didn't mean when I wrote it. And if I had the time, I could read my way through 50 years of my innermost life. What a terrible thought. And if I don't burn them, he said, if I don't burn them, someone else will sometime. And that's another humiliation. That's it. That's what the preacher's talking about in chapter 1. What do we gain from all of our toil? And in the end, what difference does it make? And when my life's work are gathered in a bunch of boxes in the attic or on a hard drive on a computer, I can either do something with it, get rid of it, or sooner or later somebody else will as well. So that's chapter 1. How's everybody feeling? Hopeful? I gotta get going. I gotta move fast. Okay, so we keep going. I'm gonna uh, let me see what I want to do with this. He he keeps going in the end of chapter one. He talks about how wisdom is there's wisdom has its limits, but wisdom is better than being a fool. So he's still realistic. He'd much rather be wise than a fool. But then he recognizes that the wisdom he's pursued, the education, knowledge about life that it, it hasn't led to what he hoped it would. He says, look at 
verse 16, he said, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. In some ways, then, the more wisdom you gain, the more you understand about the world, the way people work, the way the world works, he says it'll make you more miserable. There's one old preacher whose famous line was, I was a really good preacher until I learned all the issues. And there's a sense of the more you know, the more you learn, the harder it gets. The more it keeps you... I think about when I was 22, 23 years old and wanted to be a preacher and just I thought it would be so great. I'm going to spend all my time studying the Bible. And so I got into deep Bible study. And the more I learned about the Bible, the more I realized this is way more complicated and at times faith challenging than I ever thought it would be. Can I know too much about the Bible? Can I know too much about the way the Bible works? The more you know, the more miserable you can be. So then chapter two, we're going to skim over this one. He, just imagine, he, he talks about the way he pursued pleasure and he used his wealth to enjoy all things. But then he also gets in in the middle section, he, he talks about building a great project. And it's this little mini empire, houses, vineyards, gardens. He had singers, he had a band, just so apply this. Think of, think of a preacher saying, and so I thought, I'm going to build a great church. Not just people, but it's, it's going to, there's going to be a big building. We're going to have all kinds of programs, multiple services, acapella, instrumental, multi-generations. And imagine him saying, and I did this, and we were able to build a huge building where thousands of people could gather. And then he realizes that didn't give meaning or purpose to my life either. Partly because he comes down a little bit later, and he says one of the problems is that, verse 18, he said, I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And if anyone who in a church has ever gotten into a succession nightmare where the old preacher and the new preacher aren't getting along, you know, you could read all kinds of stuff into this verse. One generation builds a great church and then another generation comes along and says, we want to change this. And the previous generation says, you can't change this, you'll kill it. So, well, but it's going to die anyway. I preached at a church for six years in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that at one time I think had the largest auditorium worship center in Churches of Christ. This is the Garnett Church of Christ. It would seat 3,000 people. It was this beautiful, huge, beautiful, open space, lovely building. All kinds of energy went into building it. All kinds of dreams were behind it. And several years ago, they sold the property to a school district, and they came in with bulldozers, and they tore that building down and replaced it with an elementary school. What do we gain for all the toil under the sun? All the, and I think about the people in that church who, before I ever got there, all the sacrifices they made, all the prayers, all, all the work that went into that, 
and another generation came along and couldn't hold it, couldn't maintain it, couldn't pay for it, and like a sandcastle on the beach, it washed away. Vaporous, vaporous. All things are vaporous. So he's really bothered not just by death, not just by being forgotten, but also he looks at the coming generations coming along behind him and he, he doesn't trust them to manage what he has built. He's not sure that they, can, they have the, enough wisdom. So there's that. So then we get to three. Chapter three, there's a time, a time, a time, a time, a time. This is a great, great fodder for a pop song. It's a nice poem. You can read it at a wedding. You can read it at a funeral. If you really get what he's saying, it's quite depressing. Because for him, this is the wheel of time. Look, there's, it's a time to be born. It's a time to die. There's a time to speak and a time. And it just keeps on. There's a time, a time. And that wheel of time is turning. And eventually it runs over you. He says, verse 9, after the poetry, he gets into the prose. Verse 9, what do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Okay, good, good. It, that all fits. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet, and here's the problem, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We have a sense that there's a bigger picture. We have a sense that this cycle of time that seems to keep repeating itself, we have a sense we want to believe this is going somewhere. Like Luke said yesterday, we want to believe history is going up and to the right. There's something deep within us that wants to make sense of the big picture. And God has put that in us, he says. But he has not given us the ability to see the big picture. He's not given us the ability to discern the times to see where all of this is headed. So the limits of wisdom and knowledge emerge again. He says, I want to make sense of it, but I can't. I can't see what's going. We want to believe as ministers. We want to believe that we're making a difference, but we can't always see. We sow seeds that we never get to see the fruit from. People come, people go. We hope it's making a difference. Maybe lives are being changed, but maybe the lives that are being changed, they moved from Texas to California, and we never get to hear about what happened afterwards. We have a sense that it's making a difference, but we don't always get to see the, the whole story. I loved Chris's story last night. I wish I had more of those stories. My, my ministry seems to be shaped more by, I think I'm throwing some seed out there that's helpful, but I'm not getting to, to harvest all the fruit. But we sure want to believe that's the, but we don't get to see it. So there's the limits of wisdom. Then he says, uh, where do I want to go? Now let's stop there because I get it. Okay, so there's, so here's, here are his problems and they're my problems. And they're what resonated with me so much as I work through this. We're not sure there's any gain or payoff. We're not sure there's a point to what we're saying. We say a lot. How much of a difference is it really making? A lot of what we build, we don't live long enough to enjoy the fruits of the labor. And there's always the chance that 
The next person that comes along behind us is going to be a fool and undo all the good work we did. What's the point? What's the payoff? Is there anything beyond the vapor? Now, it was dwelling on these thoughts and articulating them to my congregation that made, helped make me want to keep preaching. And here's why. First, the teacher articulates my experience of ministry perfectly. I resonate. I, I, don't, I, I never feel the need to protest or to counter and say, yeah, but what? No, that, I get that. He's describing the kind of world I've been living in and preaching in. Which immediately reminded me I'm not alone. I'm not the only person who has felt the despair of, is there any real point to this? I'm not alone, and thousands of years ago, there was a sage and a school of wisdom who said, this is the way the world works. And then there was a group of people who said, that's not pleasant, but we think it's important. Why don't we keep these teachings around? And at some point, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and however you envision that, Somebody said, we got to keep this in the Bible. There's some truth here. This resonates with experience. And so then it, that got me to think, okay, I'm not alone. And Ecclesiastes is in the Bible, and it is loved by a lot of people, not just because it has some good refrigerator magnet verses, but because it resonates and it doesn't just resonate with preachers and teachers. It resonates with attorneys and doctors and educators, and fathers and mothers and politicians. As I talk to people in my church who aren't preaching, aren't doing what I've been doing, they say, yep, you're right. That's right. He's saying out loud the quiet parts. Okay, so what if, what if I expect too much out of my vocation? What if part of the human condition, living in a broken, fallen world with limited knowledge, with a short lifespan, what if I just expect too much meaning? What if I expect too many answers? Am I entitled to see the big picture in my short life that is but a mist? Do I expect too much? That was one of the questions I began to ask. Is it okay to not know? Is it okay to not see? Is it okay to not be able to grasp how all of this fits together? And one of the big messages of Ecclesiastes, and why the preacher's words are in the Bible, I think, is the preacher tells us it's okay. It's okay. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to be in despair. It's okay to hate your work from time to time, or maybe most of the time. It's okay. It's okay to wonder, why am I doing this? It's okay to ask, is there any real point? It's okay. One student read Ecclesiastes in one of the commentaries a guy named Brown wrote, and said a student read Ecclesiastes and says, what I like about Ecclesiastes is it makes everything okay. Whatever you're experiencing in life, it's not preferred, not 
what you aspire to, but whatever your experience is in life, it's okay to have that experience, to not always feel good. It's okay. And then he says there's more wisdom in that student's words than any commentary or theological article about Ecclesiastes you could ever read. It's okay. So that was my, this just reset my base point. What I'm feeling that's making me think it's time to quit preaching, it's okay to feel that way. And why, why do I expect that by quitting preaching and doing something else, I'm suddenly going to have this bright, cheerful, meaningful experience? Because I've got a lot of people in my church who are doing something else, and they're not having that experience either. So it's okay. Second insight was that the preacher shows me how to accept the limitation of wisdom and accept the futility of not being able to see, know, or grasp. It's simply not our place as finite creatures to be able to view the big picture from God's perspective. And that's okay too. There's a little verse, I gotta get into a little bit of preacher geek here to make this point, but it's in chapter three, verse 15. And it, it's one of these really downer verses where he says, whatever is has already been, and whatever will be has been before. And then there's this line, and God will call the past to account. And this is an enigmatic verse, that final phrase, your notes in your Bible will tell you the Hebrew is uncertain, which means there are multiple ways to translate this. And depending on your translation, you will see notes with multiple ways. One of the ways to translate that final phrase, instead of God will call the past to account, is that God seeks out what is pursued. God looks after what is pursued. And the reading of that little phrase is, well, what is pursued? And who's pursuing it? Well, all of Ecclesiastes are about these futile pursuits of humanity. And he's just said, we want to know and see the big picture, and we can't. But God seeks out what is pursued. That which we cannot see, God sees. That which we cannot know, God knows. That which we cannot grasp, God holds on to. And this is that later on where he says, when you approach the Lord, let your words be few. God is in heaven, you are on the earth. Recognize the distance. God has a view of things that you don't have, and you're never going to have that view. Stop worrying about it. It's okay. It's not ours to know how all of the seed we sow turns into fruit someday. But God seeks out what is pursued. The futile pursuits of humanity belong to God. So there is a humbling mechanism in Ecclesiastes is stop, stop trying to see things through God's perspective. And let God be God, you be you, and you let God handle that which is what you're pursuing. That little phrase means a lot to me. And it gave me permission. That, that's where this, the title of this class came from. I got this line from Fred Craddock years ago in a lecture on preaching. But he said to young preachers, 
every morning when you leave, considering the magnitude of what you're about to do and the work that is before you, as you walk out the door, say to yourself, here goes nothing. Because that's really the best we can do. Here goes nothing. But God seeks out what is pursued. And third, the teacher does remind us to savor the gifts of joy whenever they come. They're the carpe diem passages. They're scattered throughout Ecclesiastes. They're those bits where he says, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. But I'll tell you what, if you can enjoy your food and your drink, or if you find a little bit of pleasure in your toil, make the most of that. It doesn't last, it's fleeting, but enjoy it. There are these little glimpses, these gifts from God, where in the coffee house on a Thursday afternoon, you're writing a sermon, and you're like, I really enjoy this. That doesn't last, but make the most of it while it's there. There are those Sundays when you're preaching, and it seems you're connecting, and it makes a difference. Doesn't do it every week. The difference may not last, but you made a difference. Make the most of that. Savor it. There will be these glimpses. Dwell with them. Make the most of those little bits of joy. It's also worth pointing out he's really big on eating and drinking. How do we combat the meaningless, pointless, vaporous nature of life? He says, enjoy your food and drink. And I can't help but make a Jesus move here, but how did Jesus say, remember the hope you have in me? With food and drink. How do we combat the vaporous nature of our existence and the despair that can come upon us? Sit at the table with others and enjoy your food and drink. I think that's a big part of what we're doing here this week. The best part of this for me is always the meal times and hanging out with my friends and food and drink. And there are these little glimpses of joy. And, and, and they're not going to last. And they don't do all that we want them to do. But they can be enough to keep us moving forward. Okay, finally, i got two minutes for this. The frame narrator. At the very end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, after the teacher has had his say, that second voice pops up again. And let's see, it's 12. Pops up in verse 9. And again, so this is not the preacher anymore. He says, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words that he wrote and they were upright and true. So the frame narrator endorses what the teacher just said. Some of the darkest things you will ever read in the scriptures, the narrator who is putting this together says he is speaking the truth. Then he says, verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails. And that's not pleasant truth. It hurts. But this is helpful. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. I think also the frame narrator is saying, don't camp out in Ecclesiastes too long. This is true, but you probably don't want to build all of your theology on what the teacher's saying. 
of making many books. There's no end. Now, verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Now, this is a bit interesting because on first the frame narrator says, listen to him, he's speaking the truth, but then he comes in at the end and cleans it up a little bit. And again, this is church life. Because the preacher's the preacher and the frame narrator's the elder who gets up after the preacher and says, we thank you for that sermon, but let's also remember this. And the elder, had, now I don't know if that ever happens at your church, but the elder has to clean up the sermon just a little bit. That's what the frame narrator is doing here. These are wise words. We need to listen to them. They speak the truth. But remember this. Nothing the teacher has told us is an excuse to give up on God or to quit obeying the commandments. So listen to what the teacher says, but keep obeying God anyway. Pete Enns is big on this in his commentary. Darkest commentary on Ecclesiastes you'll ever read. But in the end, he says, the hope is to be found in this. The frame narrator says, listen to what he says. He speaks the truth, but don't give up. Follow God anyway. At times it seems meaningless. At times it seems pointless. Obey the commandments anyway. Preaching doesn't always make sense. Ministry isn't always rewarding in all the immediate ways we want to reward. All that's true. Follow Jesus anyway. And that's why I'm still preaching. Thank you.